Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Did every parent go through that phase where one of your kids wanted to bring uh, a rodent in the house and feed it and cuddle it and name it? Um, Jessica never really got through, uh, ended that phase. And uh, so I gave in to my daughter and uh, we got a glorified, you know, uh, rat that uh, was just a few feet down from my room. And... um, yeah, there's a fancy rat. You know, you know how much money we spend to keep rodents out of our house, and then we just invite one in and uh, call it part of the family. <laughs> so we had, you know, the pellets, and we had the water bottle thingy, you know, where that, and uh, and of course we had the the wheel. Um, these little monsters get in their wheels, and they run nine thousand miles uh, and never get anywhere. And I wonder if you can sometimes feel that way. You're running on fumes, you got appointments and you got bills and commutes. And in a moment of circumspection, you're like, is there more to life than this? I'm on a hamster wheel. I wonder how many of you even deeply involved in, in church life, committee meetings and programs and volunteering and it's become its own version of a of a rat race where where you've kind of forgotten even the goal of it all um and then there's the uh, the 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 times that are eaten up by circumstance that we have no control over for example i've i found out the average lifetime in the average lifetime of a typical canadian i don't know how they figure this out but we will spend over the life Six months sitting at traffic lights waiting for them to change. Eight months. Some of you felt like you did that just yesterday, uh, all, all six months. Eight months opening up junk mail or dealing with spam email. Two years trying to call people who aren't in or whose line is busy or being put on hold while you wait for the bank or the airline or Rogers. Um, Three years in meetings, five years waiting in lines. Um, you know, I guess, I guess the good news is that when we do have free time, though, we're spending it on really meaningful and productive things, right? We're not. The average person, I got this from research from Forbes, spends, get this, 1,300 hours a year on social media alone and over 2,000 hours a year, that's between five and six hours a day, on their phone. I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I know what we all will feel at the end of our lives if we're not careful. Regret. 
regret. I once read this fascinating sociological study where 50 people over the age of 95 were asked one question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? I mean, first of all, congratulations on finding 50 people over 95. But these folks who had this unique perspective and vantage point, they had lived nearly a century. Um, and the question was left open-ended so they can answer it however they wanted. And what was intriguing was that three answers rose to the top, dominated the study. People over the age of 95 said if they could do it all over again, they would reflect more. If they could do it all over again, they would risk more. If they could do it all over again, they would do more things that would live on after they died. Um, I don't know if, uh, if this movie will ring a bell for anybody. It had a, you know, kind of an impact on me as a, as a teenager when I saw it in the theater. In fact, if anybody wants to help this illustration out, and actually stand on your chair, I, I, I would allow that. Anybody willing to do that? Okay, just, oh, go, yeah, good, good, okay. Yes, yes, and, and how, did the world look different up there a bit, Neil? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a Latin phrase that entered our popular lexicon through that movie, even before, um, you know, it had been around for long before that. Anybody know that famous Latin phrase from that movie? Carpe diem. And it means what? Seize the day. And isn't that really the essence of what these 95-year-olds were reflecting on? If they could do it all over again, they would have seized the day. Uh, those two ideas. First, that life is short. We really don't have much of it to spend to begin with. And, and, and it goes by so fast. And then this idea that because life is so short, we should do everything good with it that we possibly can. Those two things are at the heart of what I think James wants to explore today as we go through this journey of reading this great letter from the New Testament. It's a section of the letter that's only five verses long. So let me just read all five verses and then let's talk about it. Um, James chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to do this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So let's unpack that for a second. James begins by, by targeting a um, particular kind of person, maybe more accurately, a, a, a particular kind of mindset um, a mindset that says, here's what I'm going to do with my life. 
here's my five-year plan, here's my 10, 20-year plan. I know where I'm going to travel, where I'm going to live, how long I'm going to spend here, the deals I'm going to make, the steps up the ladder I'm going to take, the money I'm going to earn. Now, we all think that way to a degree, right? We, we all make plans. We all lay out sort of a course for our life and we try to follow it. That's, that's just being responsible. Uh, and throughout the passages of Scripture, um, the Bible actually does encourage us to, to prepare for the days ahead. We're told to be smart in terms of saving our money and, and doing the kind of work that will keep us employed and and being strategic in our dealings with others. And James isn't contradicting that. And maybe what he's wanting to expose, though, is something that can seep into our thinking, a spirit, a mindset, an attitude, and it's all tied up in one little word. Let let me just read that first verse again. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. That's the key word. It's the word will. I will do this. I will do that. And James says, "Mm, careful. You sure you have as much will, as much autonomy, as much agency as you think you do? Uh, And then he really goes after it. Uh, Verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What James isn't after uh, is um, is to disparage planning. It's about presumption. Presumption. To presume, the dictionary says, is to take upon oneself without permission or authority. A presumption is an overstepping of proper bounds, the taking of something for granted. It's thinking that your future is yours to have, yours to orchestrate, yours to presume upon, but it ain't. You have no idea what the future will hold or even if you'll be given a tomorrow. You don't know if you'll even have the rest of this sermon. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that series of books, like the hundred movies to watch before you die, or the hundred books to read before you die. I think the first of them was this, a hundred things to do before you die. Um, New Year's Eve in Times Square, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, Carnival in Brazil, Bastille Day in France, Oktoberfest in Germany, the running of the bulls in Spain, uh, nude night surfing in Australia. No selfies for that one, please. The, The author of that first book, Dave Freeman, his goal wasn't just to write a book. The whole plan was to write a book and then live out the book. Uh, It was his plan to do all 100. And Dave had them crossed off, about half of them. And then he hit his head at his home in L.A., and he died suddenly, 47 years old. No matter what we plan, no matter what we set out to accomplish, the reality is that we have no idea 
what the future holds. And, and that's not all James reminds us of. Not only do we not know what will happen tomorrow, the entire scope of our life, no matter how long we live, is like a mist. It's here in the morning and then vanishes almost as soon as it appears. Category. You know, sins of commission. You know, the things that we actively do. And James is raising the issue of that less considered sin, the sins of omission, the things we ought to do but don't. Uh, Jesus once told a story, three men, and they're given three different sums of money to manage. And two took their money and doubled it, and one took it and buried it. And he hadn't done anything wrong with it. He hadn't put you know, 10 grand on the lease to get past the second round or something like that. He just hadn't done anything with it. And that's the guy Jesus took to task. He told another story that became one of the most well-known of all his stories, the story of a good Samaritan, a man who'd been assaulted, left to die on the side of the road, and, and two very religious, pious men walked by and did nothing. They hadn't been the ones who had robbed him and beaten him, and, but they did nothing. And it was them who Jesus called out. And then there was the story that Jesus was illustrating of what we might hear at the final judgment. Those who didn't give food to the hungry, those who didn't offer a drink to the thirsty, those who didn't shelter those in need, those who didn't clothe the naked, those who didn't visit the prisoner or care for the sick, those were the ones who heard, away from me, you cursed ones. Not because of what they did, but because they did nothing. They didn't cause the hunger or the thirst. They didn't cause the sickness or the lack of shelter or the nakedness. They didn't put someone in prison. They just didn't do anything. Sins of omission. We're so concerned with making sure we don't do the wrong things, you know. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. But James along uh, with Jesus says, make sure to actually do the right things. Um, and at the end of our life's run, it, it may be the things left undone that will weigh most heavily on our regret, our legacy. In fact, the truth is that there will probably be more sins of omission than sins of commission on our record. So along with all of the other presumptions you can make about your life, don't make the one that goes like this. Once I make this amount of money, then uh, once I reach this place in my career, then you know, once I've saved up this much, uh, then I'll do the good that I know I ought to do. How many times have we said, you know, once, once I get kids out of diapers, or once I get kids out of elementary school, once I get kids through high school, once our kids get through college, once we get past the wedding, um, then I'll start growing, giving, 
getting involved, serving. Tomorrow, I'll do it. You don't know if you'll have that tomorrow, and you most certainly won't have all the tomorrows that you think you'll have. I got the privilege of being part of a funeral this week. A man who's now in the loving arms of Jesus, and I'm sure not everybody shared the same faith that I have in that mixed group of people, but something about a funeral, regardless of where you are, gives you a moment to reflect soberly on the, the brevity of life, on, on the kind of impact you want to have, the kind of legacy you want to leave. And no matter how long you live, if you're thinking you, you'll always have to wait until this thing is over, until that goal is done, you'll never do it. Because there will always be something ahead of you to be done or to get past or to accomplish. Nah, man, let's seize the day to do the good that we can today. The good God has asked us to do. The good he's put before us. The promptings that he sent to your heart. Like, I don't know what it might be for you. Um, Changing the way you're relating to people. Maybe forgiving somebody who's wronged you. Uh, Trusting God as you take a risky step of obedience. Um, Like our brothers and sisters said about going. Maybe you need to go to Guatemala. Um, Repairing that broken relationship. Visiting that lonely person. Writing that check. Inviting that friend. Offering to meet that need. Since we don't know what tomorrow will hold, and, and... and this could be the last day you live, maybe spend it like it's your last day. But not the way the culture thinks we ought to you know, be living our last day, parachuting, buying a jet ski, living out every hedonistic fantasy. As those who understand the true nature of this life in light of eternity, if you knew this was your last day, you wouldn't want selfish experiences. You'd want treasure laid up in heaven. You want to make a difference in people's lives. It it wouldn't be about what you got out of this life, but about what you put into it. That's what will matter when it's over. There's so, you know, there's so many mass shooting these days that it's hard to separate them. There was a really horrific one at Virginia Tech in 2006, left 33 people dead, including the shooter. And a week after those shootings, um, one of my all-time favorite authors, Philip Yancey, was invited to speak to the school. Uh, He'd written this book, um, Where is God When It Hurts? And so the, the school chaplain thought maybe he could speak to their shock or their grief. Um, what would you say if you were asked? I'm, I, in a way, I hope I'm never asked. I'm not sure I have the words. Little did the campus pastor know that Yancey had only just a few weeks ago been in a, a car accident that nearly took his own life. And he was still in braces. But he went. And he shared with the school what had raced through his mind as he faced death. He said, all that mattered boiled down to these four questions. Who do I love? Who will I miss? What have I done with my life? 
And am I ready for what's next? And apparently he's tried to live by those questions ever since. When you, when you see how Jesus spent a day, you see he lived with a kind of um, what matters most mentality. One day he's walking towards uh, Jerusalem and he's hurrying because they want to get to this important Jewish festival known as Passover. But on the way, he stops and he, and he heals a blind beggar by the side of the road. And the people with Jesus, they're, they're frustrated because he stopped and because they needed to get to the city. But Jesus had a different understanding of what mattered to help hurting people like that blind man. So he did. And then as Jesus took up his walk again and they actually got to Jerusalem, uh, he ran into a man named Zacchaeus who was one of many people lining the road trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. And then Jesus did it again. He veered off schedule, this time so that he could go to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And this really frustrated the people he was with. Uh, Not only because it upset their schedules, their plans, but because Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And tax collectors, by the way, are not like accountants working for Canada Revenue. It would be closer to what we'd call like a loan shark, an extorter. They were known for having cheated and bribed and manipulated their way to that position. Bad dudes. So from everybody's perspective, Jesus was wasting his time. But from where Jesus was standing, oh, it was, it was time well spent. It was a, it was, um, It was good that needed to be done. It was a person with dignity created in the image of God, someone who Jesus saw past his decisions, past his reputation, and Zacchaeus ended up becoming a follower of Jesus that day. And he actually returned the money he had extorted with interest, helped the poor. So after that event with the blind beggar and and the issue with Zacchaeus, after a day that was, you could say, Um, driven by a different GPS than the disciples were following, Jesus gathered them together and gave them a bit of a life lesson about that day, about their priorities, about their frustrations. Jesus simply said, I, the Messiah, have come to search for and to save souls such as these. So let's get this life lesson down because it's so, so important. And I know I'm not telling you anything new this morning. Like I said, coming to church is more about reminding you of what your heart already knows to be true. But here it is. Life is short. You don't know how much of it you have, but whatever it is, it isn't much. So seize the day and seize it to do good. So that whenever the end comes, you will have lived the life that God has willed for you. I read about this unconventional artist this week. I think for many artists, and we have a few in this room, probably part of the joy of creating beautiful work is that others can continue to experience your work for years to come, maybe even, maybe even long after your life is over. And that's what's so interesting about this guy, Calvin Siebert, a New York artist 
who, who makes art out of a rather in, impermanent material, sand. Uh, these are elevated, to say the least, sandcastles. And as, as Leela flips through the different pictures, you'll see some of his creativity. They are, they are works of grand, you know, majestically intricate sandcastles. This is a guy who's been crafting these little masterpieces since he was a child, but for some reason um, doesn't seem to mind their short lifespans. He told a, a journalist who was interviewing him, you know, it could collapse right now, and you got to be okay with it. And by the time the tide comes up, or the wind is strong, or an ATV comes by, or vandalism happens, it's gone. It's gone. In other words, probably before the day is out. I, I, I don't know anything about his, this man's faith or lack thereof, but I think that he intuitively understands something that we would be wise to understand. How fragile things are. Things that we think are permanent. To hold loosely our accomplishments that we hold to so tightly. You know, that it can all be lost when, when as the Sunday school song says, the rains came down and the floods came up. So if we know that, if we know that the impermanence of this world, our so-called legacy, even the impermanence of our body, will one day be permanent, a treasure that neither rust nor moth can destroy, that thieves can rob, then let's live that way. We tend to complain that our days are few, but then we act as though we have, you know, no end of them. The psalmist says, teach us to number our days, Lord. Lord, would you teach us to number our days. Not in some morbid fascination with death, but just a, a realization that this life is but a mist and, a, and a, a more profound, permanent life is coming. So it matters what we do here.